All right. Let's Thanks do it. Thanks for joining me. Let's do it. Digital assets and the future of financial innovation. Small topic. Small topic for 40 minutes. Um, why don't we start with where, where we're at now, what's happened in the last couple of months, how are you feeling about things, <laughs> and uh, then we can talk about where it's, what it all means and where it's going. So I'm feeling great, hence the purple jacket uh, and the cool shoes. Um, I think the last two months have been really special if you've been in the crypto business uh, as long as I have, right? If you think about Bitcoin, really started in 2009, so we're what, 12, 13 years, um, 12 years, 13 years into this. And up until recently, when people talked about crypto, they mostly thought about Bitcoin, even though there were all these other ecosystems and currencies. And they mostly thought about crypto as a hedge versus the debasement of the dollar, right? We're buying Bitcoin because central banks and Ministry of Finances around the world, and including the one here in the US, are being really irresponsible, and we are printing money, right? You said, what, 20% of total money? In the last year. In the la printed in the history of the country in the last year. And so that was kind of the story, and people said, well, what's Bitcoin backed by? Is it a real currency? And you'd go up this ex explanation over and over that, no, it's this digital gold, and you're not gonna buy your shoes in Bitcoin unless really all hell breaks loose. <laughs> but there was a much bigger story that was happening and it wasn't really being well explained, and people weren't picking up on it. And I think what's happened in the last two months is a real realization that Web 3.0 is coming, right? The internet of value exchange is coming. So the Ethereum network and, and, and the potential Ethereum killers or collaborators, this, this base layer of trust that we're building to program on top of uh, is actually a real thing and it's happening. And there have been some symbolic things, right? Visa, buying an NFT. So people think, oh, is that marketing? Visa bought an NFT because they think digital goods will be the future. That's why they bought an NFT. They bought an NFT because they think today when you look at their whole user base, this is a $500 billion company. The average person swipes a visa 0.9 times a day. They think in the future, because we'll be buying so many digital goods, their average customer will swipe a visa 10 times a day. So they're making a huge bet on Web3. Right? This isn't Bitcoin going to the moon uh, with a bunch of YOLOing going on. This is a serious, serious company saying the future of the financial markets are gonna be built on this new infrastructure. Uh, Walmart and Amazon, uh, interestingly, in the same week, put up help wanted signs for crypto, um, two biggest retailers in the world. I am seeing, every time I meet a CEO, I get a follow on email, hey, could you come talk to me about how would we think about our company in this new ecosystem? And so I think what you've seen, and you saw the price of Ethereum and Solana and Luna and Polkadot, all these level ones skyrocketing. What triggered it was the NFT craze. And you know, you've got, what's an NFT? Right? Well, you know, if you think about it, let's break it down and make it really simple. The genius of Bitcoin, and in some ways I always thought it took my simple mind 
to try to make it simple for me because I wouldn't understand it when I talked to all the computer science guys. The genius of Satoshi's white paper was it was the first digital signature you couldn't counterfeit. That was it. Before then, we could control, paste, copy, you know, and have lots of things on, online digitally. And Satoshi made it possible for us to have uniqueness. When we have uniqueness, we can have scarcity. When we have scarcity, all kinds of things. We can have value transfer. And so we saw it in art now. We're seeing collectibles, right, with NBA Top Shop exploding, gamifying, collecting, you know, video clips. We've seen it in art, things like generative art. Art blocks has exploded, right? Uh, ringers. I, I had Alex Cherniak at my house, uh, and he was showing me his ringers, and I said, those are pretty cool. And I was going to buy one. It was like $3,000, and three months later, it's $2.3 million. And I was like, ah, my damn phone was dead. Uh, <laughs> and so this explosion of NFTs triggered this mindset that, shit, that's happening on Web3. And I think now every investor I talk to, if it's a hedge fund investor, a retail investor, family offices or institutions, realize they're short the next internet. And so why we're seeing every venture fund who says, I'm going to raise... They're closed in a week. Every new deal is being, there's this FOMO going on because people realize, hey, this is the next chapter. And again, I don't know if prices, that means prices are gonna go up straight in a straight line, they never do. There's always volatility around, but there's lots of risks. But it's a very different conversation that I'm having today with, with users, with, with, with investors, than I was four months ago even. And so there's a, there's a shift that's gone on. And I really think it's people now see this as a technology play. It's not just a speculative play. Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's unpack that a little bit. So I spend most of my time speaking with people in wealth management, financial advisors about, about crypto, about Bitcoin, um, and other asset classes in our work. And one of the things I find is that there is, uh, you know, you talked about FOMO. There's a feeling that maybe they're too late, that they've missed out on Bitcoin. What do you say to somebody who thinks that? You know, listen, every year you look back and like, God, I should have bought that thing. Um, you could have done the same thing with Amazon stock. Uh, Amazon stock had one of its best years this year. Ever since 2000, every year it looked like you missed out. And so I think big monster trends that really do change the way we behave go for long periods of time. Total crypto wealth, roughly two and a half trillion dollars, which is maybe a half a percent of total global wealth. So if you see all the trends I'm seeing, or you can see just by reading the newspaper, something really bad has to happen for total crypto wealth not to go from a half a percent to something like two or three or four or 10 over time. And so while we might not see the ecosystem expand as fast as it did in the last year, right? We went from 350 billion to two and a half trillion in say 17 months, uh, it's really hard for me to see, not see it expand. And so when I look at Bitcoin specific, specifically, Bitcoin as digital gold is being adopted and the story is being bought into. I don't think the, the Treasury Department and the central banks around the world are gonna do a good enough job uh, in this really difficult period they have to get people to believe that they're not going to debase currencies, right? In some ways, the only way out for the U.S. dollar is 
and what we're hoping for, praying for, is a slow depreciation of the dollar as opposed to a fast one. Uh, and so Bitcoin adoption is continuing to happen. Bitcoin right now, what is like so $900 billion, gold 10 trillion, so we're 9% of gold. We're gonna get to 100% of gold. We're not gonna get there next year, but we'll go from 9% to 16%, then 16% to 25%, then 25%, we'll look wise than 50%. And so four, five, six years, Bitcoin will be 500,000. Assuming gold price stays where it is, I actually think it'll all go higher. And so, so if we're, so you talk about internet 3.0. So if this is internet 3.0, and if we think about internet 1.0, and if we draw the analogy, what year are we in, in terms of this? Is it, are we in the late 90s? I like to think, if you've ever been to a NASCAR race, the cars go around for a while and they have a green flag, and then all of a sudden the checkered flag comes out and they all go for real. Uh, the checker flag just fell. We literally just started the race. Like, people didn't believe in Web 3.0. And quite frankly, a lot of the ecosystems and what you're seeing now aren't built to scale yet, right? So why is Solana so exciting all of a sudden? It's because Ethereum is on this path to scale speed and complexity over time. But it's not fast enough right now to process as much crap as the world wants to process, right? The idea of a decentralized internet of value, exchanging value across people is so exciting. Everyone wants to do it now. The computer scientists haven't figured out with Ethereum how to do it fast enough today on a decentralized form. So there's thousands of nodes in Ethereum. So what do you do? You say, hey, I'm gonna create another system that's less decentralized, less secure in that respect, uh, more easily manipulated, but probably not going to be manipulated. That's much faster. And so all of the other blockchains, Solana, Luna, uh, they're much faster. So, and you're seeing adoption. Now, the market will tell over time how much we care about decentralization. Regulators will make their way in when they really understand it. Do we want the future of finance, the future of commerce built on a platform that might be manipulated? Probably not. And so I think even a, a, a protocol like Solana, if it's going to survive long term, is going to have to find a way to be much more decentralized than it is. Again, this is, I start getting out of my league as a computer science guy because I'm not. Uh, but that's the simple way to think of these different L1 protocols. There's a trade-off between speed and security, speed and decentralization. But what I'm telling you is why they're all working is because everyone wants to build on them right now. Every conversation I have is how do I build on Web3? There's so much that you can do. We're monetizing community for the first time ever, monetizing social prestige for the first time ever. Uh, and that's so, all based on the blockchain. I mean, the first principle of this is understanding the blockchain and what that allows, correct? Yeah. And if you think about, you mentioned NFTs. So if you think about, you know, we're, we're hearing a lot about CryptoPunks and digital assets and digital artwork and generative artwork, but isn't there also a, a, a big connection to the analog world, right? So if I'm an art collector or I'm an art gallery, what are the implications of this trend in NFT well, in terms so what, what of authentication? Art, I'll tell you a fun, fun story. There was a, one of the legends of, of art was having a party to talk about NFTs with all his old collect, collecting friends. And I crashed the party, uh, had to have a few too many cocktails, and I brought this woman, Emily Cheng, who's known as People Pleaser, to the party. And I 
interrupted. I said, if you guys want to talk about NFTs, why don't you talk to a young NFT artist who's just crushing it? And as she was talking, it made so much sense. She was, we'd love to have you in our community. We don't need you, right? Who's supporting NFTs, this crypto community who's made lots of money recently? And they're supporting their artists, their movement, right? It's fascinating to them. And so, you know, who bought, who bought the, the Beeple for $69 million, a crypto guy? Who's buying most of the, the Ringers or the Denzas, uh, which are really cool art, right? Ringers and Denzas are an extension of Saul LeWitt, right? It's algorithmic art uh, done by these genius artists that will get collected by traditional art people in, t in the future. But right now, it's crypto people supporting crypto art. Um, and in some ways, it was so interesting, they don't need that. What, what crypto has done is it allowed community to form much faster than we ever formed it before, right? If you're Pace Gallery or Larry Gagosian, you work tirelessly to cultivate your buyers and you tell the story of an artist, right? The, the, the gallerist deserves a lot because he's creating value by telling the story of why Jeff Koons is important. Right? Why is Balloon Dog a $30 million sculpture? Because people say it is. That's it. How many people say it is? Well, who can afford a Balloon Dog? A very small subset of you know, the, the globe's population. They're all connected by the Larry Gagosians and the Pace Galleries of the world. We are doing that at a much faster scale uh, in crypto and in NFTs. And so it's the exact same thing happening right? Why is a Denza, it's beautiful, it's cool, it's limited, there's, you know, there's only so many of them. And we're connecting to communities that are passionate much faster than in the past. Yeah. I think about though, like, have you seen the movie on Netflix, Made You Look? No. It's a great film. It's about the oldest art gallery in America, 165 years old. And over the last 10 years, they sold $80 million plus of fraudulent artwork. Unknowingly. Big deal. Does that happen in the future where we've got this sort of ability to prove visually for provenance and... No, in, 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 one of the nice things is you're gonna have provenance, it's gonna be there. Uh, listen, it doesn't mean that the crypto community is all a bunch of you know, white-hatted good guys. I mean, you saw yesterday some jackasses uh, posted a fake press release from Walmart that they were buying Litecoin and Litecoin jumped 15% and all the crypto jumped and I scratched my head, I was like, who would buy Litecoin? You know, it, why? And it made no sense to me, but I wasn't quick enough to short it. And then, of course, it turned out to be fraud. Uh, they had bought a website, walmartsomething.com, a month earlier, uh, sent a very formal-looking press release out. And so ho hopefully they end up getting arrested. We're going to continue to see, in any hot industry, fraud, uh, you know, scamsters, uh, fly-by-night excitement. We don't want to lose, lose the, the forest through the trees. And I, I mention that because a lot of the, in crypto they call it FUD, fear, uncertainty, or doubt. A lot of the backlash from politicians and or regulators that aren't educated is, oh, this stuff's all used for bad shit. Uh, it, it, the truth couldn't be, you know, you couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, I was part of a group that hired uh, the ex-head of the CIA to do a study uh, on crypto, and he spent eight weeks or seven weeks d doing a deep dive with all the agencies, with players, with all the security companies in crypto, like Chainalysis and CypherTrace. And he determined that in Bitcoin, you know, a tiny amount was used for illicit actions, and most of that 
was scams. It wasn't terrorist financing or, or kiddie porn. Uh, and quite frankly, it was a lot less than the traditional finance world and a lot less than cash. Uh, and so I mention it because it's, you know, people say, What's, what could go wrong with crypto? Well, what could go wrong is we could have some really crappy regulation which will slow things back, right? If the US and Europe doesn't get regulation right, it will slow the growth of Web3 immensely. And their vested interests that don't want it to happen, right? At its core, the blockchain allows to cut out rent takers. And so if you're banks or if you're the NASDAQ, you're really worried about Uniswap or SushiSwap. Uh, you know, you really should be. Um, smart companies are quickly pivoting and figuring out, if you look at Visa, right? Uh, they're pivoting, how do they work within this new ecosystem? But there's gonna be winners and losers like in any technology transfer. And so, Mike, talk a little bit about applications outside of finance where you see companies getting on the bandwagon because this is not limited. The implications here are not just limited to finance, right? In terms of what this internet 3.0 is gonna do to business at large. Yeah, listen. There's a couple of really cool ideas that showed up that have surprised me. Um, one is, in the last five years, we've created this idea that identity is worth something, right? GameStop. There's not one equity analyst on the planet that would tell you that GameStop has a discounted cash flow value that, that's worth anything. But the stock is resilient as heck because the people that buy it have identity. They're, they're GameStop guys. They're, they're Reddit warriors. Um, Cardano, it's a, it's a big crypto protocol with over $80 billion last, I think it might be $100 billion. Uh, I can't find people in our community that are building on it, doesn't have a lot of activity on it. But man, oh man, when I say something bad about it on Twitter, I get attacked by a wave of hornets, at times death threats. Like, they have their identity in Cardano. It, very similar, quite frankly, to uh, anti-vaxxers. Right, I mean, Texas, there are seven vaccines you need before you can send your kid to school, but God forbid this COVID vaccine, the, the anti-vaccine is an identity. It's not even intellectual. It's the same way, way um, GameStop isn't an equity buy, it's an identity. And so this idea of identity is, is real, and it might be much more resilient than all of us think. Because our first instinct, especially as old investors, is, oh, this all's gonna get the shit kicked out. It's all going right down. Well, it hasn't been because we now have this idea that value can show up in all kinds of places, right? One of the unintended consequences of zero interest rates forever is this idea that who, who are you to tell me what's valuable? Um, and we have a balkanization of the world, right? So one of the downsides of decentralization is balkanization. Hey, this is my stuff, leave it alone. I get that so often when I, when I make a, not even a critical, when I make a semi-critical comment of a crypto ecosystem, I either get you're, a, you're an F-tard uh, or I want to kill you, or the, the more intelligent comments are, dude, just leave us alone. <laughs> you know? And so I think thinking about how identity plays in our evaluation frameworks, it never was part of evaluation framework, but that shows up in other ways. You're going to see a deluge of fan tokens. Remember when you were a young kid, you joined like the Bobby Sherman fan club or whoever your, whoever your, uh, you know, your, the Farrah Fawcett fan club, you know, you 
pay a dollar, you join their fan club, and you get nothing. You're going to see fan tokens where people are going to pay, and they're going to they're going to get meet and greets, or if you know you get 25 tokens, Paris Hilton will give you a kiss on the cheek. Uh, you know, like they're not going to be they're going to be non-equity dilutive, but they're going to be identity tokens in some ways. People will never use the the goods they're used for. Right, just like very few people use the Binance BNB token for discounts on their commissions, but they buy it. Uh, and so I think this idea of identity and actually having it have value is a new, is a new idea, it's a radical idea, and it shouldn't be dismissed. There are a lot of people who look at blockchain as maybe a, a cure-all for what's going on in society. So you look at issues with education and with healthcare, are you... Are you are you bullish on the implications of what the blockchain? I mean, you see I mean, think about of think about supply chains, right? Yeah. Like, we go to Starbucks, and it would be nice to know that the coffee's not being picked by slaves in, you know, some part of South America. And so you're going to have a lot, and you're seeing this already, a lot of uh, supply chains done on a blockchain, so you can prove provenance. And at one point, maybe it'll change the way we think, right? If we knew each time we bought a 450, you know mocha latte that the guy that picked the bean was only getting two cents of that 450 and the barista was getting 80 cents and what like if you could actually see the breakdown you might change your spending habits to something that felt more just you might not but like the blockchain will allow that and so we're seeing lots of different companies private companies and some public ex public ideas of how do we use blockchain for for supply chain um, as one idea. It's impossible to think that in some period of time, and it's probably longer than we all want, that all our healthcare records will be NFTs, mm. right? It's crazy right now. If, if I got hit by a car and I went to some hospital, they said, what medicine are you on? And uh, I don't even know what medicine I'm on, but I'm on a lot. Uh, and, you know, my healthcare records are all over the place. It should all be an NFT. Diplomas, uh, the same thing, right? Yeah, that's happening already, right? Yeah. University of Arkansas put all their diplomas on the blockchain. MIT as well, block um, certs, yeah. And so what you're hiring a kid, you can real check if he actually went to MIT or if he just told you he did. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good for MIT. I think it's also really interesting when you look at the, the refugee problem, right? So classic story of Syrian refugees who come over and they, their records are washed away and their schools are no longer there, right? How do you prove that you were a doctor or you were a pharmacist, yeah. right? Um, putting that on the blockchain is going to really change things significantly for those populations, which is pretty key moving forward. And so the, the, the takeaway is we talked a lot about this stuff in 2017. I would hang out with Joe Lubin at Consensus and he would give me the architecture you know, the map of what was going to happen in the future, but it was a lot of talk. And what I'm telling you loud and clear is something shifted in the last few months. And now there is an energy going into these projects, an energy going into this space that I haven't seen since I've been in it. And I tell the people that work for me, I said, two years ago, you were taking a lot of career risk. Like, this whole thing might not work out. I think it's going to, but it might not. Uh, now I tell my employees, we have execution risk. The competition is coming. We got to work our butts off. Everyone's getting into this space. You know, do we have a lead or not? I don't even know, but we better keep working because it's all about execution. And so I think, listen, the roadmap's not completely clear because this stuff's complicated, but 
the idea that we're not going to live in a world where blockchains are a big part of it, I think, is limit down. And it's speeding up, right? Because you look at convergent technologies. I mean, what really happens when AI and blockchain intersect at scale? Well, you're seeing it with generative art, right? What, what is generative art? It's using AI to create art, and it's the hottest part of NFTs, right? If you, if, and if you were telling me right now, I have a million dollars, I'm not going to look at it for 10 years, and I need to buy NFTs, that's all I could buy, 100% I would tell you to buy generative art, as opposed to crypto punks or, you know, apes or any of the other kind of avatar-like cool, cool identity things. Like, what's a crypto punk? It's an identity. Matter of fact, I was on stage at Christie's. Sometimes you can be smart and an idiot at the same time. Uh, and Jay-Z had just bought a CryptoPunk as his avatar. And I was like, guys, Jay-Z is the king of culture. If he's buying one, we all should. And then I went and I started looking and I couldn't find the one I liked and then I forgot about it. And now they're all up 15X. Um, right, CryptoPunks are selling at $6 million. Uh, there are 10,000 of them. They're pretty cool. Uh, they're different you know, scarcities. Um, but it's identity again. Again, I'm less confident that the value of CryptoPunks will hold up versus, say, generative art, because I think generative art will be looked at as real, you know, uh, an extension of art as opposed to a collectible. But I could be wrong. Like, uh, you know, there are not that many, you know, CryptoPunks, and there are a whole lot of rich people. I mean, if you think about when I said earlier, three, 350 billion to two and a half trillion. So that's call it $2.15 trillion of crypto wealth created in the last 18 months, owned by some traditional people that had wealth, right? I started, I was a pretty wealthy guy. Uh, lots of people that didn't, lots of young people. So this is a generational shift, right? The baby boomers are the ones that have kind of screwed the world up, right? <laughs> They've been in charge for 30 years. We've gotten 30 pounds heavier on average in America. Uh, our deficits have blown out to levels that we don't think we'll be able to pay back. The planet is not in such great shape when it comes to global warming. And so the stewards of our country for the last 30 years, from Bill Clinton here to, to Joe Biden, haven't done a great job. And Gen Z and millennials know that, they're angry, and they're doing their own thing. And so the crypto revolution is a young person's revolution. It started. Satoshi wrote the white paper because he just lost trust. My friend Joe Lubin got involved in Ethereum because he literally was like at his wit's end after the financial crisis. And he wanted a different way to look at the world. And so don't miss out on that this is a generational thing. Uh, and so things that seem strange, talk to your young kids. Talk to the kids in your office or your own children or 18-year-olds. And you'll get a whole different perspective on crypto art, a whole different perspective on why this is important to them. You've talked a lot about education being important in this space. How, so you got the young generation who get it and maybe the older generation who's being left behind and that gap's widening, right? Because the, it seems like there's just a deluge of information, right? About crypto, about Bitcoin, and it, it's never ending. How do you, what's your advice in terms of educating financial professionals, for example? I know you've done a lot of work in that space, working with wirehouses and independents. How do you, how do you bridge that gap so that a financial advisor is actually able to convey 
something that's accurate with confidence and clarity to their clients? Yeah, it's a great question. Matter of fact, you know, part of this revolution going on, Robin Hood, crypto, is the democratization of finance. Yep. Well, that's got its downside. Like, I, in general, I am for it, but I'm like, dudes, I got a lot of knuckleheads out there gambling their money and thinking it's easy, right? Being a prudent and good investor has never been an easy job. It takes lots of work. It takes... Uh, lots of discipline and if you don't have hard work and discipline you're gonna lose most of your money and so I think the financial services industry will change but I think it serves a huge huge role uh, on a go-forward basis right in educating and actually giving advice to people who don't want to spend their time thinking about making money you might be a, a doctor <laughs> or a lawyer uh, or a housewife or an artist that doesn't really care about, you know, you know, what's happening in the market on a day-to-day -day basis. And so, A, I think the group that needs to get educated are your guys, yeah, right? The financial advisors. I don't think they're going away. Um, and I don't think they should go away. Uh, I don't want the whole world focused on the price of Ethereum day-to-day. -day. Like, you have all these young kids that think they're working just by looking at their crypto prices 24 hours a day. I was like, dude, that's not work. You know, that's like dopamine. <laughs> uh, and so it's imperative for the FAs to actually dig in. And the only way they're going to learn is to work, is to get on Twitter, is to. There was a guy walking around here, John Cheeseman, who was an old FX sales guy. And now he's one of the best crypto sales guys. How? Because two years ago, he just dove in. He got on the right Twitter groups. He got on the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Telegram groups, got on Twitter. And so there's no easy road. There's lots of information. The good news is crypto lives on Twitter, and it's, it'll take you two weeks to figure out who are the right people to follow. Um, there are spectacular uh, explanations of everything on YouTube. Anything Vitalik Buterin did he's articulate he's bright uh and you can kind of understand it some of it gets too detailed and you got to figure out what you need and you also have to understand that you're not going to catch everything right right now if people ask me i don't want to spend my whole life doing crypto but i want to be invested i'd say buy some bitcoin buy some ethereum buy a basket of other level ones and buy galaxy stock because we kind of do a lot of everything of course uh, but let's talk about that for a second because i think you, you're talking about a generation of people who are not used to learning through social media not used to learning looking at twitter as the source of truth right and you have a very high signal to noise ratio with all of this right so you also you know i find that we, we work with a lot of financial advisors, and we look at the, the challenges of learning about digital assets. And it's really interesting because we see a great increase in demand. They want to learn about it. But compared to traditional asset classes, hedge funds, private equity, it takes three times longer for these advisors to reach a level of mastery equivalent. And we've been thinking a lot about that. And what's occurred to me, and I'm curious what you think, is that there is a there's a gap because it's not just about being a, a finance expert or a wealth expert. You have to understand the technology to a certain extent. There's, a, there's an underlying story to this that's not just the way you learn about a hedge fund. Yeah, and I think it's important, but in 
some ways it's not as important as people think, right? I always thought what's about not, what's not important. Well, how a blockchain works, okay. right? What's the consensus mechanism for the different blockchains? Like in, for our industry to be successful, that's the back of the TV. When my mom turns on the TV, she's just really excited that her show's on. She doesn't understand how the TV works, nor do I. Right. And I think in the long run, even knowing something's peer-to-peer -peer versus going through a clearinghouse is you're a little indifferent as a consumer user, uh, unless you've got a real political side to you. And so part of this is going to be made easier because with all the capital coming into our space and the fact that these blockchains are coming up to scale finally, um, that the ecosystem is big enough for people to invest in finally, uh, you're going to see wild innovation in the U UX UI and the user experience. User experience in, you know, pull up a MetaMask wallet to try to buy an NFT and it's not a pleasant experience. Or even trying to buy an NBA Top Shop was absolutely not a pleasant experience. Uh, you have to remember, two years ago, our industry was a lot smaller. We had gone through crypto winter, people were building, and it wasn't built for scale. And so when lots of big institutions say they missed it, I was like, you didn't miss anything. You're so big, you couldn't have participated in our market before, right? It didn't have the liquidity or the size. And so we're only now getting to the liquidity and the size where a CalPERS or a Texas Teachers could actually make a meaningful investment in Bitcoin or in Web3. They couldn't have two years ago. It would have, it would have been almost comical. And so you're seeing a natural evolution as this industry grows up. And I keep coming back to this. In this, two years from now, you might think that guy was a cracker. But I literally think, I have this intuition that something important happened in the last three to four months, two months, that we crossed this threshold that Web3 is a thing. And I, I see it. And so I think all this capital coming in is only gonna grow itself. Right, you know, the success is going to beget success, and you are going to see this year the first big pension funds come in and say, "Hey, for our pensioners in the state of X, we're putting a half a percent into Bitcoin." Uh, right? I mean, how much risk is that? I've told them all, dude, it's the greatest marketing you could do. Right? You want to attract young people? Tell them you're crypto forward; they'll come your way. The mayor of Miami got that really right. Lots of corporates are now figuring that out. Hey, let's at least accept Bitcoin. We're speaking the language of Gen Z and millennials. Why do you think Major League Baseball, we partnered up with Major League Baseball in a company called Candy uh, to sell digital sports memorabilia, digital goods uh, in, in baseball. All sports are having a hard time getting younger kids interested in their sports. Hmm. Let's use the thing those young kids love to bring them into our community. Like baseball's a perfect, all sports are perfect places for crypto, right? They already have tribes, right? And so you're just using a new technology to pull more people into your tribe. And so I think you're gonna see more and more companies think how do I connect both with young people but all, all people via this new technology. Oh, I certainly agree. Um, but when you come back to advisors, you've got independent advisors who run plus minus $8 trillion of high net worth wealth, you want to see that money, I, I presume, start moving it in this direction. And I think that it's hard to tackle crypto without thinking about tackling the education system, without tackling the way we learn about this stuff. And I think a modern 
um, new system like this requires a, a refresh in terms of learning. It's like, we, it's like the system hasn't changed in so long, and how can we keep pace with this innovation, get the right content the right yeah, way? It's a great question. Because I, I literally, and this is not to pat myself on the back because I'm getting sick of it, I get asked to speak four times a day. Uh, I could literally just do nothing but speak because there's this wealth of information and there are not a lot of macro guys. There's a few other really good macro speakers that talk about this. Raul Paul understands the intersection mm -hmm. of this and Dan Moorhead, but not a lot that came from macro that understand this. And, you know, I'm hoping over time, you know, we at Morgan Stanley, when they started selling Galaxy's Fund, we did all these sessions to 4,000 or 15, 2,500 RAs. Uh, you're hoping that they become the salesman and it's not just me. Uh, that's why I think this is going to go viral. I think it just takes time. I don't think there's an easy fix. If, you, if there is, I will li literally carry you on my shoulders and, you know, like if you, if you crack the code, you'll be my favorite guy. I think learning takes time for people. It I've been in this, I need to hear things seven times before that really kind of clicks with me because it is complicated. I mean, if you want to simplify it, a blockchain is a database, right? And if it was just our blockchain, it'd be really fast and really easy to manipulate, <laughs> you know? We'd be like, let's screw those guys. Uh, and so the more nodes that have to look at that database and verify it every five minutes, every 10 minutes, every one minute, whatever the, the, the protocol is, the slower it is and the more complicated it is and the more expensive it is to, to upkeep. Yeah. And so even that decision, should I build up? I, mean, I had one of the, the great Web2 innovators. I ran into him in Big Sur three days ago, and he was asking me, should I build on Solana or Ethereum? And I was like, oh God, <laughs> you know, like you're asking the wrong guy. Like I'm not a computer science guy. I can frame it for you. Um, but that's a real technical question. Yes. And so for an investor, I think the best they're gonna do is understand what the board is. Yes. I would agree with that. And I would also agree that learning takes time. And if it takes seven impressions for you to learn, I think the key is, though, is it seven times you hear it seven times in a row or seven times spaced out over time? And what's interesting is there's a lot of good research about how you help people learn that doesn't get applied here. And I think we have to make this switch. You know, the, you talked a lot about how the internet has sort of chased the price of things down to zero. And you think about knowledge. Knowledge used to be incredibly valuable. You know, a kid in Africa versus a kid who had access to information at Harvard, very, there's a great disparity there. But now it's equalized, right? And so we, anybody has access, equal access to information. So that's not enough anymore. And this deluge of information doesn't afford us the ability to really learn and absorb those things. Well, I mean, if, if you think about what really works in NFTs and what really works in lots of things, it's the gamification. Yes. So as, if you can gamify learning in this, in this for, for, for your FAs, you probably win, right? I mean, I'm looking at all kind of, the, all the best projects are gamified right now. Yep. Um, you know, there's a, age-old DNA in all humans, they love to gamble and play games. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's part of, I think, how you accelerate getting the older guys. And it's kind of crazy that the education system hasn't really adopted those principles at scale. And I think there's an opportunity to do it here. And I think you've got a generation of people that would, that would appreciate that and participate in that ecosystem. Right? An so Andrew, I see, I see a future for you. Like, on poor Case, you're going you're gonna, you're gonna to leave Case and you're going to start 
How are we gonna gamify teaching FAs how to learn crypto? You gonna back that? Uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> Never, I'm not leaving, but we're gonna do it at Case anyway. So I think that's the way to go. It's interesting. Awesome. Good. Thank you. Very good. Great talk. <laughs>